0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening and welcome. I'm Professor Emily Jagos, the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences here at the University of Sydney and it's a pleasure to launch the inaugural Centre for International Security Studies Global Forum. Before I do that, and on your behalf, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet that the University of Sydney is built. This evening and tomorrow, as we share our thinking about uncertainty on a global scale, we recognise the histories of indigenous engagement with uncertainty, and also pay respect to the very certain knowledges embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. The Centre for International Security Studies, CIS, was established in 2008 by a generous gift from Sir Michael Hinsey and under James Durian's direction, CIS applies critical approaches to geopolitics, obviously, but also biosecurity, cyber security, development security, quantum innovation, global media and feminist security studies. I was kind of tempted to say last but not least, but it really is last but not least, feminist security studies. This is the first in what is intended as a series of global fora and has been made possible by support of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Sydney and the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Tomorrow I understand that you will all be being almost magically transported from Circular Quay to Manly's refurbished quarantine station on something called an eco-hopper ferry. (laughs) I envy you that experience for a considered concentrated thinking about peace and security under conditions of uncertainty. Tonight's innovative format pulls together an interview-style panel, and in fact all I have heard James tonight telling our guests is, yeah, you know what I told you, the format we're going to do, we're going to do something else. I like to keep it fresh we jumped jumping it up. People are like, well, what are we actually doing? <laughs> now we will find out. From four leading international security experts, visiting scholars from Geneva, from Ottawa, and Copenhagen, it's going to be a great event tonight and tomorrow. Uh, we can promise you no certainty. We can absolutely promise you no truth. Please welcome <laughs> Professor
1: James Duryea, who will introduce our panelists. Thank you. First, I just want to say thank you, Anne-Marie, for the wonderful introduction. The idea behind the Global Forum has been percolating for some time, of applying critical thinking to global practices, and it wouldn't have been possible without Anne-Marie's support and Simon Tormey, head of school but also the Carnegie Corporation of New York. So I want to thank all of them for their support. And the idea behind it as well was to do a rapid response, and that's by academic standards, to the most pressing global issues. So we're going to be asking for you as well um, in the Q&A and also just by email, what you consider to be the most pressing global issue maybe that we did not address because um, this will be a series, and uh, we want to be very much a dialogue um, with the public. There's no shortage of global issues, but we chose this one, peace and security under uncertainty, because it's fairly obvious. uh, We have a, a new president in the United States, and uncertainty has risen with him to power. And if you Google Trump and uncertainty, you will get 30 million hits. It's been going up to 30 million to 40 million hits, results. But I don't want, and we don't wish, we do not want to do the standardized sort of op-ed 100 days of President Trump. So we wanted to be under uncertainty because I don't think we can lay all these issues on the doorstep of the White House. Some of these pre-existed, the current regime, but also I think they transcend Lie deeper than the current president. I do believe by focusing more on the uncertainty than on the Donald, we also don't get caught in that mirroring effect, almost the kind of narcissism that really sort of marks this administration. If we obsess too much about the individual, we don't pay attention to the underlying you know causes and, and movements that gave rise not just to this presidency, but obviously in other democratic regimes, authoritarian regimes, various movements. So we're not going to spend too much time on Trump's appearance, his tweets or his policy pirouettes. We are going to try to pay more attention to um, the important issues uh, of the day and we want to consider opinions from our guests to exceed more than 140 characters, add a little depth to the analysis and also hopefully formulate some policy options. Now, I think with the rise in uncertainty also comes an increased need for us, academics, but citizens, concerned folks, to really apply critical thinking to some of these issues. And it's why we're staging this event here. And if you just bear with me for one minute, look around this room. This is the philosophy hall of the University of Sydney. In the back, we have dead white men, um, some in togas, the, you know, philosophers that really, marked the canon of Western philosophy. But it's also where John Anderson um, lectured for close to 30 years as um, the leading, I don't say the most famous, because many of you in this room probably don't know John Anderson, but he um, had a profound impact on many people by the, the people he taught in this room. I think it was Roy McLeod who pointed this out to me, my former mentor, Hedley Bull, sat in these seats and took courses from Uh, John Anderson. Indeed, in Hedley Bull's preface to his most important book, Anarchical Society, he acknowledges his debt to John Anderson, and he says, my greatest intellectual debt is to John Anderson, a greater man than many who are more famous. And Bull takes pains to, you know, um, endorse, explain the pluralism, um, the skepticism, most importantly, the critical attitude of John Anderson. And we hope to bring that to bear in these global forum. It's really a counter tradition of applying critical thinking to ideas, often assumptions that are just too often taken as received wisdom. So we're gonna askew, we're gonna try to avoid the superficial analysis, the political orthodoxy that marks a great deal of um, the current thinking about the Trump administration. That's why I'm very pleased we have four international scholars. I think it's important to bring in outsiders to help us get out of our own comfort zones and and our ways of thinking. And they're chosen, largely they came as visitors, because they all, in their careers, have been very familiar with international theory, both the traditional and counter-traditions. But they apply them to try to achieve better practices in world politics. Rita Aversum is a professor in the Graduate School of Public International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. She's an expert in developing good governance in Africa. Spends a lot of time on the ground, but also theorizing about it in um, two very important (coughs) books. Doing alphabetical here, Tom Bierstecker, who's the um, Gasterger Professor of International Security, Director of Policy Research and Program for the Study of International Governance at the Graduate Institute Geneva. He's the guy who helps the good guys fight the bad guys with global sanctions. If you want to do targeted sanctions, national organizations, NGOs, transnational organizations often come to TOM to figure out how to do it effectively. Lena Hansen is with us from Copenhagen. She is the director of the Images Project at Copenhagen, Images and International Security. And she was the first full female professor of international relations. She's received, her work has been recognized by many with grants, but also the Danish Ministry of Science, Technology, Innovation, awarded her the elite research prize, which involved flowers and kisses from the crown prince. And money. And money, a great deal of of money. She works on gender, cybersecurity, but more importantly for us today, the role of images. What's the role of images in world politics? Finally, Michael Williams, um, also at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at Ottawa, with Rita, has done some pathbreaking work on private security, militias, it has a new project a very fascinating project on radical conservative political movements and how they're having a credible impact on foreign policy often overlooked people often spend too much time focusing on the domestic now to start off um, I'm gonna try to raise the spirit of John Anderson although I have to say with this digging going outside I was worried they were disinterring some graves of old professors that supposedly are buried here but John Anderson was a controversial figure. He also studied some of these questions about politics and philosophy. And I think there's a new urgency that Anderson recognized as well because I don't know how many people know this about John Anderson, but he was censored by the National Parliament at one point. The, he was censored by the University of Sydney um, Senate for many of his views. And one of them was for um, daring to say that The memorialization of war sanctifies war, and he was thinking in particular about Anzac Day. And we're in the middle of another controversy about how we memorialize war, and it's related to the truth. And my first question, and this is going to be an interview style, and if you feel an urgent need to, you know, pose a question or a follow-up, feel free to wave your hand, because we do want to make this as, as interactive as possible. But my first question actually goes to Tom Bierstek, because um, before I took this job, Tom was my boss at the Watson Institute. And we used to walk down Tharrow Road, Thayer Street, and there was an arch. And I never knew what this arch really symbolized until I saw a ceremony going on on Armistice Day. Armistice Day for the end in the United States of the First World War, like Anzac Day. And for those who are watching this eventually on camera, Anzac refers to, of course, Australia, New Zealand, Army Corps, and the, the plan the Misconceived Plan, as it turned out, by Winston Churchill, to set up a second front to attack eventually Constantinople, as it was known then, and um, defeat the Turkish, who were the, the Turkish allies of Germany, didn't go according to plan, and 8,000 New Zealanders, Australians, died in Gallipoli, the Dardanelles. Now, Anzac Day in the United States has nothing. There's nothing quite comparable to it. But on this arch. Are the names of the 42 dead from Brown University who who fought in this war, First World War, uh, alumni and students, and on one side is the very familiar uh, quote. You probably know it from Winfred Letts' poem, uh, "The Spires of Oxford." They gave their merry youth away for God and for country. Now, the second arch has a much darker quote, and this is going to be my question to Tom, but also to us, because the the poem is from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Sacrifice, and it's quite striking. It says, "'Tis man's perdition to be safe when for the truth he ought to die. "'Tis man's perdition to be safe when for the truth he ought to die." Now, this relates to security. It relates to uncertainty, and it relates to the truth. You know, what is this truth? Why is it so powerful? Is it worth dying for? I'm posing this first question to Tom because if his answer really upsets anybody, he gets to go back to Geneva, and I won't be censored by the, the, the university senate. <laughs> so Tom, my first question is, I don't know if you were struck by this, but you've done work on sovereignty and, and what makes sovereignty effective and its relationship to war, but you know, what is this truth? Is it worth dying for? And how does it relate to you know, the certitude of the, the nation state?
2: It, it suggests a privileging of, of the idea of security or safety. And, and the question might be, you, you referred to my work on uh, state sovereignty as a social construct about 20 years ago with Cindy Weber and quite a few others, uh, where we, we tried to explore the, the bases of the different aspects, the different meanings and the changing meanings of sovereignty. We didn't try to fix meaning in place. We tried to emphasize the changing meanings. But thinking about a privileging of of safety over truth, the idea that we privilege, and and it's the whole securitization idea, that that security becomes privileged among all other issues. In the pursuit of security, you actually silence any other discourses very often. Um, So when I think about core elements of sovereignty as claims of final authority over a particular idealized territory over an idealized people or, or population. Um, oftentimes the basis of that, and if we think about the origins of the concept, even going back to, I mean, literally the classics, uh, Puffendorf, we, I mean, you go back to, the, to Montesquieu, uh, we, can, we can think about why does the state exist? The state exists fundamentally for two reasons. One, to provide a basis of order, safety within, And at the same time, to provide a basis of security from with threats from without. And so I think that the idea of privileging of security and safety is actually part of a foundational idea in the origins of of the state and the relationship between state and sovereignty. That's how I would start at least. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Um, Any motion to uh, (laughs) censor him at the University of Sydney's parliament? I think that was safe. That was safe. Discourse. We're going to have a follow up. I
2: wasn't trying to be safe. (laughs) I was trying to be truthful.
1: Oh, good.
3: Thank you, James, and uh, thank you for having me here again. I mean, what, what your question brings to mind, and, and also the way in which that, that inscription on Brown forms, uh, works as a performative statement, uh, I think it's also one that, in a way, sort of does not properly, ref- or sort of hides a notion about choice, right? Uh, that it sort of presumes that there is a choice to actually make that sacrifice. Whereas I think that that's much more problematic. And I just that, that that we look at the way in which that those militaristic, heroic, and so on, discourses, it's one that presupposes individual choice, but, but is there really an individual choice there? So there's a way in which that I think it both draws on a liberal notion of choice, but also on a romantic, heroic vision you know, of you giving up that choice Uh, but that it's actually a freedom to give up that choice is often you know not actually not realistic so it's a political discourse it's a performative statement rather than simply a declaration uh, of what took place.
1: Um, Tom invoked securitization which for those who aren't familiar with the Copenhagen School of International Relations is one of their brands. The notion that to elevate a issue on the agenda you um, declare it in the name of national security to be important Um, and so lena has been doing work on, on, on how images work in securitization. But she also has written on the famous or controversial uh, Mohammed cartoon controversy that led to death threats. And you curated a show on it. So I'm just wondering if you could say a word or two about that experience, but also how maybe it shifted with, you know, in modern sort of representation for not the words being as important in securitization, but images.
3: I think that, that the, uh, I mean, what the Muhammad, the Muhammad cartoon crisis I think produced a, a, a lot of different uncertainty effects, uh, if you like. I think one of the things that uh, were important about it is that it did not uh, it did not immediately cause a, a crisis when the when the cartoons were published. Uh, they came out in the in, in late September of 2015. And it wasn't until almost six months later that we got the sort of quote unquote international Muhammad cartoon crisis. So I think, that, uh, I think both the fact that it became a crisis, but also that it was actually political agency and constituting those cartoons as having a particular significance and saying something. And the huge contestation around what a, a particularly iconic uh, drawing uh, of Muhammad with, with a uh, uh, bomb in a turban, that, there was act- that there's, not an imme- there's not a simple immediate certainty effect of the image that it is a political constitution, it is a securitization, there's agency, there's politics involved. Uh, so in that sense, there is an inherent uncertainty to, to go with the sort of the overall theme of, of, of this round table. There's an uncertainty about the politics of images. There's also, if we go to theorization, to Barts and so on, uh, there's always an anchoring of the image. So an image does not speak in and of itself. So at the same time, you know, we have the ambiguity, but we also have something that is, can be incredibly political effective. I think also there that, that, um, that actually for those of us who are in the business of politics and broadly speaking social science, I think that that is also perhaps like a good thing to recognize because it means that agency a- and the political constitution of what images mean gets to be foregrounded. And, and that we can't assume that there is a particular politics that follows from any, uh, from any given image. That said, of course, once the Muhammad cartoon crisis become a crisis, then there is an inscription of a political meaning onto them. Okay? And, and so, in, so in that sense, you know, when you move into and we get you know, both Charlie Hebdo and Paris and so on, you know, there's also a bracketing in of that politics of ambiguity. But I think it's important to have that, you know, as a the theoretical approach that we keep that open and look at the politics of of making, you know, of having that certainty being bestowed upon uh, upon images.
1: So that's a power exerts itself in its ability to caption the image, to put the caption that loses that ambiguity. Is that?
3: I think that that depends. I think that there's some images that where you have less ambiguity, not because the image itself is, l- is lem- less ambiguous, but if you look at the Muhammad cartoon crisis, I mean, it's more than 10 years ago, and there's still heated contestation about what that cartoon actually articulates. Uh, you can't, it, it's, it's impossible to, to to say with certainty whether that singular drawing is in reference to a collective subject which is about all Muslims, is it about Islam, is it about religion as being I- 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 in taken advantage of by extremist forces and so on. So there's actually, there's actually not an agreement, and that's part of, 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 of understanding the politics around that particular image crisis. I think that there are other image crises, for example, the one related to the photo from 2015 of Alan Kurdi, that has a different dynamic. So I think I don't think that there's a one, you know, that is one particular form of securitization to take uh, to take the invocation of, of of the Copenhagen School that is plays out equally in terms of all uh, all the visual crises that we have.
1: I, I want to come back eventually to this question of you know how do our words take on meaning, and whether or not our intention, the intentionality of the author you know, exhaust all meaning, or if we've lost that, particularly with the proliferation of media um, producing images, Mm -hmm. but I want to go to Michael, because Michael's been, he's identified this rise of um, various, I think you you rightly call it a radical conservative politics, Mm -hmm. not just uh, conservative politics, but what do you identify, uh, well, in your identification of it, what role do you see uncertainty playing? Are they using it? Is it using them? Um, are they riding an uncertainty wave? What, how do you um, kind of put cause effect here?
4: Great. I to, if, if I can answer that by coming back to your first point. You should but know
1: by now there's no <coughs> rules to this. Great. Your
4: first, your first question is, is, um, is really about the relationship between philosophy, history, and war. Okay? And I think the context is really interesting here. Because if, if one is looking at Emerson, the context is really the first, is, sorry, is the Civil War. Right? Yes. It gets re-commemorated in the First World War. But the real context is is the First World War and Emerson's main point is that basically one has to be willing to die for truth which sets up a certain conception of certainty, right? That one has to be certain of the truth, so certain that one is willing to die for it. There is, I think, a really interestingly important counter tradition, particularly in American thought, that's very important. and It's one that I personally find fascinating and I associate it most with, with a for me, one of the most interesting figures in, in legal and political history, Oliver Wendell Holmes, the longest serving justice of the American Supreme Court ever, who reacted to that, who was wounded three times in the Civil War, very, very nearly died, and who reacted against that with an argument that, in fact, certainty was the problem, and that one needed to have was a conception of society, politics, law, and indeed truth that was separable from certainty in that way. And my, my favorite, I'll just toss this out there because it's my most, my most favorite quote from, from Holmes, who was a very controversial man, but very interesting one. He said, free speech is a theory that I find impossible to believe. This is a justice of the Supreme Court, not just me, right, saying whatever I want. But it is a principle that I hope I would be willing to die for. That, it seems to me, the, Emerson, sorry, the, the contrast between the Emersonian position on truth and politics and the Holmesian position on truth and politics sets a context that is really, really important and I think maybe worth, worth us thinking about a little bit further. Can I come back to the radical conservatism later? Because yeah, I'll no, probably talk too through much about it. I have anyway. a feeling
1: Rita might have a word right. or two to say about this, or would you like to move on? About truth, uncertainty, and security, or we can move on yeah. to- No, no
5: I, I would rarely be lost for things to say. <laughs> 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 I mean, what struck me when you quoted the poem of truth worth dying for Uh, in in my area of work, which is mostly the African continent, is how many new truths there are, that are currently being seen as worth dying for in Africa. So we have seen in recent years a kind of growth of movements that people are willing to die for. And they are oftentimes uh, presented as if they are old, traditional, ancient, ethnic, ethnic, or religious. Whereas, in fact, when you look at them, they are often profoundly connected to modernity and the present articulation of uncertainty. So the number of proofs worth dying for, the extent to which they are true, are firmly, they're firmly true for the people who lay down their lives for them. But they echo back to a form of certainty that is, in fact, very closely related to the present-day contemporary politics of, of uncertainty, of global relations, and of modernity. And I think that, that kind of puts an interesting, um, interesting inflection on how we tend to see contemporary uncertainty as often sort of a clash between something new and something old.
1: Yeah. That's great. Okay. Well now we're going to get back on script and I'm going to allow uh, each of you to say a word or two about how uncertainty factors into your particular research area or region of interest. We can lead with Tom if you'd like. Um.
2: Okay. Uh, I almost want to come back to this, the point about, the Holmesian point about certainty being the problem. Uh, I think, um, and I, I was being a little difficult when I was given the, not the task, but there was some discussion on email in advance about what the subject of this, um, the uncertainty about what we would talk about at this particular <laughs> forum opening, uh, and I I started basically saying by thinking, well, wait a minute, there's nothing new about uncertainty. Uh, certainty is ubiquitous. We always have uncertainty, uh, and and actually uncertainty we shouldn't. Uh, it is the norm at some level. I mean, we we oh, we live with uncertainty, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. As much as Now, in our professional lives, we're constantly performing the reduction of uncertainty. We're clarifying concepts for our students. We're speaking to practitioners in in power about uh, about issues, concepts, about what we think we know about uh, these different issues. I've been writing a bit lately about um, expertise and the role of scholars in what I call transnational policy networks, which are really... Uh, ideational communities, exclusive communities of individuals who share expertise and the expertise they share both defines who they are as a community and also excludes others. And I've been, I've been thinking about my own participation in expert communities because I work on, as James mentioned, um, the design of International targeted sanctions, so I do a lot of practical engagements. I was on the phone this morning with uh, someone yesterday in New York from the Sanctions Unit and the mediation Support unit at the UN in New York uh, for work we're now doing jointly together. So I have this privileged access to participate in this, but I'm, I'm constantly so I'm, I'm performing a role of reducing uncertainty or trying to say well. I won't say this will happen with certainty, but this is what we think we know about the subject. So I, I'm, I'm worried about, I would be worried, there was, there was at least one of the, let me take out my serious glasses now. Uh, there was <laughs> one, uh, <coughs> One of the questions floating around in in the email in the last couple of days was, can there be certainty without a universal method? Well, as soon as I I hear this this word, I get nervous about any universal method or approach. Uh, So I immediately react against that in a certain sense. But um, yes, we we constantly try to reduce uncertainty. That's part of our job and our role. Uh, But absolute certainty is is, um, something we should avoid that we should have the, the distance to recognize what we know. I think the definition of an expert, first I think an expert is always defined by others. I can't declare myself an expert. I'm made an expert by other people saying, oh you're an expert on X uh, on any subject, not every subject, some subjects. Uh, and and I think you're really an expert on something when you you know what you don't know. When when you get to the point of of I I honestly don't know. I wrote a book a couple of years ago, maybe eight years ago, um, on countering the finance, financing of terrorism. In the concluding chapter, my co author and I wrote uh, quite honestly, uh, we really don't know. I mean, here, here's a book that, that's uh, widely cited, widely quoted in, in that niche area of, of financing of terrorism. And what we really understood at the end was that we honestly don't know very much about this subject. And if anyone says they do, with certainty, raise questions. Uh, challenge that notion. So I think at some level, I mean, when I think that's one part of some of the work I do on, on looking at these ideas of policy communities and, and expertise, I think one thing is to be wary of claims of certainty and to celebrate forms of uncertainty. I mean, my, I've got a concluding remark about this, but I'll, I'll hold that for later. About uh, about celebrating uncertainty.
1: Okay, we we are investigating, um, as Anne-Marie mentioned, the whether or not progress requires uncertainty. Certainly, science does. You know, there wouldn't be science unless we're uncertain about. You That's know, the basis of science. Of yeah, um, so it implies uncertainty. Scientific enterprise. Um, but um, I wanted to give Lena a chance to talk a bit more about. The areas that you do your research now, um, and how you see is uncertainty on the rise. Is it um, a factor that has led to you change your 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 investigations or seek out new ways, new methods?
3: Well, I think the uh, the 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 first response for, you know, for this for this intervention is sort of tying in with the with the 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 question of the muhammad cartoons and the politicization securitization and so on that that obviously is also connected to broader discourses on immigration uh, and questions about muslim uh, immigration and integration uh, in in west european politics and particularly in the case of denmark where i'm from so i think what 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 one of the things that i find uh, noteworthy about uncertainty, and the reason also why we're talking about it here, it's not just because I take it, it, it's not just because it's a fascinating ontological, epistemological condition of science and so on, but it's also because there is, it has attraction as a political discourse at the moment. So what is it that the claim of uncertainty does? What does it do politically? I mean, so in that sense, they, I mean, we can, you know, we can address it uh, as from the academic, like as something that that, 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 that is integral to the academic and enterprise. But we can also look at the way in which it's part of policy discourses, uh, and I think there, in 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 in, generally in the discourses on immigration, European integration, national identity, and, and, and all of that, there's a certain ambiguity to the way in which that uncertainty is being used. That on the one hand, there's an uncertainty about what's going to happen, you know, if, when, uh, uh, the, the influx of, of immigration. But at the same time, there's also a certainty that something is going to happen, which is not simply a seamless integration. Uh, so I think as, uh, as, as a political, uh, if you like, representation, uncertainty does something to both claim certainty and uncertainty at the same time. And how that then plays out, I think, is a question that's an analytical question for us that are interested in the, or working on the politics of representation to look at the specifics of what that does. Right? I think it does something differently, for example, if you're looking at Denmark, Sweden, and Germany, and, and the way in which that discourse uh, uh, has, has evolved over the last, over the last three years. But I think my first sort of would be to, you know, to actually connect that and see it as a political representation that itself claims a particular place.
1: I'd like to push uh, this theme a bit further with Michael because um, you were at Aberystwyth, which was um, probably the home of critical security studies and Colin White, our, the chair of our departments from there and other people have been there and Adam and others. And, and one of their tenants is that In some ways, all this talk about uncertainty is a luxury of the West. You know, people wake up every day with uncertainty if they're going to have enough food, if they're going to have enough shelter, security in terms of the safety as a primal level. Um, Do you feel that this is a little we're, we're not we're not respecting that enough? That we're being too Western, too privileged in this discourse about uncertainty?
4: Let me throw the question back at you. Which discourse of uncertainty? Which well, is the one you're the one most that, interested well, in. Well,
1: the one that probably comes from the, let's call it what it is, the post-structuralist yeah. one, which says that you, if you don't have a closed system and if you believe that things are open to interpretation and that there's always a mediation between you and the truth, you have to learn to live with more uncertainty, ambiguity. And to try to close that down actually leads to sometimes a repressive politics, um, of certitude, of certainty. I mean. I think we can safely say that more more wars have been fought in the name of the big T truth, a certain truth, as opposed to an ambiguity around certainty. Was that thrown back well enough back Yes, that was absolutely (laughs) thrown back well.
4: (laughs) No, that was perfect. So, I mean, for me, one of the questions here is, is, it is vital not to get hung up on the certainty versus uncertainty binary which I think is one that you would is a claim that you would accept right? The question is not whether something is certain or uncertain. It's the question of how are certainty and uncertainty put together in particular social settings and how do they play out with particular social consequences, right? That is. As somebody who's interested in politics and only in philosophy as they actually relate to politics. I'm interested in the way in which certain renderings of the relationship between certainty and uncertainty make certain political moves possible, right? make them easy, make other renderings extremely difficult. What kind of resources can you mobilize around claims of certainty or claims of uncertainty? So I think my first response to that would be to say that the real question relates here also to the socially located nature of our own thinking. right? That is, is it our ability, as which would be the with claim, safe, well-fed, generally tenured? There are deans in the room, so I, I, I don't really want to say this too much, but you know, relatively secure academics, to be insecure and to brace, embrace our insecurity, because it's not real insecurity, right? It, it's a kind of frisson of, of insecurity. It feels kind of, ooh, I like it right, as opposed to a kind of primally existential fear of insecurity. So is there, then, a connection between these two? I think there is, and I think it's one of the problems. Rita will have many more intelligent things to say about this than I do. But it is one of the problems for us to use philosophical categories too generally to think about different kinds of experiences. Right? And I worry that we have an, we have an almost equal. T- we're so worried about universalizing certainty that we universalize uncertainty in a way that it becomes insensitive to the kinds of things we're looking at. That's not a very good answer, but I. No, it's I'm good. A,
2: it's good. Uh,
1: Ria, you've thrown <laughs> down the, the gondola here. Yeah. Wax philosophical about <laughs> uncertainty.
5: No, I mean, I, I agree with, with Michael uh, Michael's argument or, or point and, and somebody who was also in with for a long time. You know, it's hard not to at a certain level. I think if you work in the areas of the world where I've spent a lot of time working, you are acutely aware of the fact that philosophizing about uncertainty is in some ways a luxury. And it's also not, as Tom was saying earlier, there's nothing new about that. If you are... Living in uh, Mogadishu, or if you were living in uh, Lusaka or in Addis or wherever you go on the African continent, for most people, life has always been uncertain it 's always been unpredictable and it 's always been risky. We can use all those <coughs> excuse me s- 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 <coughs> synonymous words for uncertainty you know unpredictable risky dangerous you know this is the condition of life always, and we can be philosophical about it but at there's a certain level, you also want to say, how do we think about the practicalities of living life on an everyday basis under conditions of uncertainty? And I think that requires a whole set of different uh, methodological approaches than those that we have at the moment. Uh, and I think uh, it could lead to some interesting research strategies and observation. But I don't, I don't think that means we shouldn't engage in uh, more luxurious academic debates about uncertainty because there are meeting points here but at the same time it's acutely, it's very important to be aware of our positioning in relation to this
1: okay i think tom wants to respond as well to this
2: yeah i, I don't want to respond as much as just just listening to it it, it almost suggests and and mike's and then and read elaboration of, uh, that we should and, and this is my typical move. Let's think about a typology. Uh, there, there, there may be different types of uncertainty. So let's immediately move from these abstract levels and start thinking about different ty- uncertainties from what? And then we're getting back now to secure it, secure it within what? What's being secured against what? Uh, what population? I'm sorry, I'm talking to them and not the rest. Uh, but I'm, I'm actually making the argument about, about perhaps we should be thinking about there are different types of uncertainty. And that might actually advance this discussion a bit.
5: And, and also just, I think, how uncertainty changes. Because to say that people have always been uncertain doesn't mean that they always or, uh, lived in conditions of uncertainty. doesn't mean that those conditions are not changing. So how are the conditions of uncertainty changing historically? How are they different now from what they have been? What are the factors that, that make these conditions change over time? I, I think is, is really important to think of.
1: I'm going to put on the table, we don't necessarily discuss it, but uh, because I also have to recognize Carnegie Corporation is supporting this enterprise because they're very interested in our project on how uncertainty coming out of a tradition of quantum mechanics and physics, a sort of post-Newtonian, post-Einsteinian, even sort of post-Enlightenment view of uncertainty um, is creating new worldviews. Um, not just within the scientific community but as increasingly quantum is producing you know the technologies that are gonna make our lives thrive on uncertainty and, and show us how each time we observe or measure something it introduces new levels of uncertainty that I'm just curious does the interconnectivity of the world play this role in that we now it's very hard to have one singular cause leading to one singular effect you have like measurement effects, observation effects that operate because everything is connected. Um, so do you see that in your areas at all this sort of interconnectivity producing levels of uncertainty that might be new on un- might be not just modern, but you know um, something entirely late, modern or new? or maybe not? Who would you like?
4: Go for it. Anybody who wants to go for it?. A couple of illustrations to to make something a little bit more concrete from the work that that Rita and I have done on on private security. the way that we did on private security is, is not engaged so much with the private military, right? So we weren't really interested in the guys running around in khakis and carrying various kinds of automatic weapons, although sometimes they did. It was the much more mundane, everyday security of private life, especially in the developing world that we were interested in. And there's two things I think I'd like to say about this. One is that, is that security as some kind of a desired good is almost ubiquitous. What it means changes. But in most of the countries that we worked in, which were large, all in sub-Saharan Africa, one of the quickest ways to see if you were driving into a neighborhood that was on the economically ascendant was to look for private security signs. Because pretty much the first commodity that people bought when they could afford it was security, which was just remarkable. The second was that interconnectivity and exclusion came together. The interconnectivity of global private security firms didn't bring people necessarily closer together. It gave them remarkable technologies, knowledges, and material capabilities to keep them apart, walled communities enclaved resource structures, various other things, right, which fundamentally transform the way in which the local political space works. I read something the other day. Don't quote me on this. I may be wrong. There are now in the town of Goma in the DRC, 6,000 people employed in private security. They are almost all employed by the people that Tom knows, i.e. the United Nations. What does that do to a particular political space when some people can procure security for money and other people cannot? Or, in fact, that the way that you secure your economic security is by providing physical security for the very people that you're supposed to be there to help secure themselves in some human security sense as the nice UN. So those connectivities, I think, are absolutely crucial. But the connectivities come with the capacities for exclusion that are remarkably powerful.
1: I, I vowed that we, and told everybody that we were going to leave it for a good half hour for the audience to ask some questions, um, so I'm going to give everybody a chance for final comments. I think it's pretty remarkable we've gone for almost 45, 50 minutes, and we've not said the T word once, except for my introduction, so congratulations. Um, so, do you want us to go down, or
3: well, Lena, go ahead. I, I mean, it, it, the question about Interconnectivity and, and and how to measure that I think is is a really it's a really important question, but it's also one that is, I think, really hard to not just to assess, but possibly also to ask in the right way. So when you have the image of Curdy that gets you know, tweeted, circulated, would call it an instant icon. And so in that sense, you could take that as a sign, uh, you know, the interconnectivity, the mobilization, the way in which the people are not just, you know, tweeting the image, but they're enacting, reenacting, performing, making sculptures in the sand and so on. And, and you have, I don't know, like how many million, uh, y- you know, tweets that happen uh, over uh, almost instantaneously. So so in that sense, yeah, I mean the first sort of immediate response is to say like we're seeing interconnectivity, we're seeing a new form of politics, not necessarily one that responds to a public sphere in any traditional sense. So there's also a different way of thinking about the public sphere and so on. Um, so there's something there, but how do we theorize that? I mean I think that the, that the way in which that actually produces questions about not just about what connectivity is, but what it does in terms of the political, the public, and so on, I think we're only in the beginning of trying to theorize that. Uh, and, And I think that there is probably also perhaps a danger that we move too quickly to the empirical or that we only move to the empirical uh, and assess those questions through you no know, numbers so you know 40 million I- you know hits on google with trump it says something but you know what does it say does it say something more than it was 10 million you know d- d- uh, i think it's really important that we keep the empirical and the theorization uh, that we keep both of those uh, those open and that we don't move too quickly to thinking that we know the theoretical framework through which we are to understand the things that unfold around us
1: I think I just had my hand slapped for not doing good quant, no, 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 social but, science. But no? it was deservedly so. It,
3: it didn't feel that way to me, James. But, <laughs> no, but if you felt slapped, then no.
1: <laughs> okay. So we're going to open it up. Um, there are hand mics. Um, did you want to say the no, last uh, word?
2: No, not the last word. Just wanted to just an observation about, and it's really taking off on on Mike's point and a bit on readers about. And this is this is just the standard story of the internet, the possibilities, the connectivity, the extraordinary things that it enables in terms of formations of communities, but at the same time, it creates so many separate communities. So the, the whole idea of where's the public, where's, where's the cosmopolitan citizen. In fact, we now have fragmented, increasingly, increasingly fragmented communities, and that does bring us back to this question about multiple truths, people who live in their own comfort zones of truths, and that's also enabled by the very same interconnectivity.
1: There are definitely a lot of filters and bubbles and polarized um, interest on the internet as well. So if you could introduce yourself, then we'll be very good about making sure everybody has a chance to crack the question.
6: Thank you. Um, good evening. My name is Cosmos. I had a question. I was struck by the comment that there are different types of uncertainties. And recognizing, well, I think you may accept that there's different types of crises as well. Um, some crises are, are not genuine crises, or I can use that term, some are manufactured crises for political uh, outcomes and so on. Is there any type of thinking that goes around what different types of uncertainties lead to different types of crises that are particularly the bad ones? And how do we filter off the noise for the crises that are actually not really crises but taking up time? Um, is it about co- in, interconnectivity? Is it about the, the, the rates of uptake? Is that the indicator? Is it, is it something else? Can, can we somehow target on the things that are actually more important? and? focus less time on things that are less important.
1: I think you've hit on something. This is because we all cut our teeth in international relations on Graham Allison about you know, if, you, if you're within a bureaucracy, if you can create a crisis that you're the only solution that you know, elevates your status within the government. Cuban Missile Crisis is the classic here. But there's, there's, There is literature on this, but um, would people like to respond specifically to this? Is there something similar that we maybe need in uncertainty um, and, you know, talking about uncertainty as a concept when it's manufactured to the advantage of a political interest, is that what you're, okay.
5: Everyone is looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, th- I think that's a very good question and I, I think now I'm gonna say the T word, um, Trump, particularly mm. now when you know, we all seem to be completely obsessed and captivated by what he's going to do next. So, you know, where's the big crisis, where's the next crisis? Has become very much about, you know, who is shouting the loudest? And who is, you know, doing the most outrageous thing? And that's where we all look, that's where we follow. Those are the things that we think must be the biggest crisis. Meanwhile, the whole lot of stuff that's going on in the world that doesn't come up in the media, that doesn't register, even among those who, you know, try and seek out the truth or the real stories and the serious journalism. So I think that question is becoming more relevant at the moment, uh, you know, where, where, you know, if it's post-truth or whatever it is, but the louder you shout, the more hits you get, the more trolls you can put out there or whatever it is, you know, that creates a perception of crisis. How we deal with that, I think, is a much more difficult question to answer than to sort of diagnose the problem, because I'm not sure how one actually deals with that. Uh, I don't think any of us quite know at the moment, which is the crisis. (coughs)
3: Please. Yeah, I mean, uh, following on from 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 your from your uh, question and 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 you know the discussion about whether uh, there could be typologies for uncertainty and so on. I mean, if I'm thinking of a crisis typology in the realm of uh, of a visual politics, uh, I would say that there. Uh, I'm not sure if there's some crises that are planned, but, but sort of the crises that can be I mean, perhaps where there is, a, yeah. Uh, but, but there's certainly also some, some crises that were not planned. I mean, you look at the Muhammad cartoon crisis uh, that completely took the Danish government aback. And, and I think that there are things about maybe 15 years from now, uh, there will be a visual diplomacy in place. That at least think that it can handle those crises, but I'd also just be a little uh, hesitant to say that that that, that, that you know governments uh, necessarily know what they're doing, um, and uh, and and that their ability to to both manufacture and and even solve the things that they might have been manufacturing in the first place.
1: I would just add that um, organizational theorists are looking at how complex systems produce their own crises, because you know a very small little event can. Produce these profound cascading, you know, ripples through the system, and that's certainly the interconnectivity helps, you know, take the localized incident and transform it into an international crisis, and maybe the same way the way that you know Trump's tweets can ampli- are, you know, an amplification of uncertainty. Other questions, um, comments, interventions, please.
7: Dr. Yelena Zaborceva, University of Sydney. And I've got two questions to two speakers. Uh, first to you, uh, Lenny Hansen. You've mentioned that Danish uh, it was a huge surprise for Danish government initially that the uh, cartoon case be- became so popular uh, and well uh, infamous and widely discussed. I was wondering if this could represent uh, crisis of attention to politics as such. Maybe people don't pay attention uh, as, as they used to, words to, to words of politicians. Maybe they, they've lost trust and lost attention while visual images capture what they want to say. So c- could we link uh, uh, this uh, rise of uh, image politics as uh, with the crisis of uh, attention to uh, words of politicians? So that would be my first question and
3: why don't we address that and then we'll follow up yeah, I mean, I think in the case of the Muhammad Khartoum crisis, it was largely a misjudgment on behalf of the Danish prime minister uh, that sort of put this in. The first major event was that there was, there was a request for a meeting uh, by 12 diplomats from countries with large Muslim populations. And it's sort a of diplomatic convention that you take the meeting even if you don't agree. Uh, and when he declined to even take the meeting, it was a break on sort of diplomatic protocol. Uh, that created mobilization by particularly the Egyptian, uh, with one of the, you know, with the Egyptian, uh, uh, diplomat to Denmark and so on. So I think what we can I think in terms of more theoretically I think that if I could I would stress both the agency but also how the small steps you know, that small decision, what looks like small decision then can have an effect and a mobilization precisely p- because it is you know, questions of politic and politics and agency and so on. I mean the first month after the, the cartoons were published there was very little attention to them in Denmark and so, so it wasn't like there was a sort of visual politics that, 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 that the government was, uh, was ignoring, as much as there was sort of, a, sort of small events and, and mobilizations and actors both within and outside of Denmark uh, that came to rally uh, around it. Um, so in terms of the theoretical framework, again, I would, uh, I would emphasize keeping the question of what images mean and even the ones that get politicized or securitized to keep that open. Uh, and really address it as a sort of sequences of agency uh, and, and m- attempts to address concerns that may or may not be successful. Thank
7: you very much. Uh, and my second question is linked to uncertainty perhaps to uh, Thomas Yersteker. When we spoke about uncertainty, uh, we've also Explain that sometimes it might be not uh, in interest of the state to reduce uncertainty. Is then it would be easier to control population. Uh, it would be easier to limit its, its freedom. It would, it would be uh, sorry. It would be more difficult to, to limit its freedom. It would be more difficult to charge people with additional taxes. Uh, uh, Tilly coined the notion "state racketeering" when it comes to uncertainty as an instrument of state racketeering. I was I was thinking about financial di- dimension. With uh, uh, uncertainty, and perhaps it was also prompted by uh, the fact that the scholars from Geneva, from the financial centre, uh, could it be that uncertainty might destruct work of risk assessment agencies and financial markets, as such as uh, uh, risk, as, as many investments are based upon risk. Huge uh, capital is often built upon uh, uncertain uh, and shallow uh, investments. So. D- Can can we perceive uh, the financial market as a constraint uh, towards reducing uncertainty? And several risk assessment agencies that make money on on that.
2: Uh, There are lots of different aspects of what you were saying about uh, financial uncertainty. It's interesting that uh, I live in in a uh, very cosmopolitan city that's identified with internationalism uh, in every aspect. In fact, we spend a lot of time talking about the future of Geneva International, and it's typically the UN and the associated agencies. I frequently point out to people, but <coughs> Geneva International is also the people who assist with the laundering of funds, uh, with the organization of private security, uh, with the, and actually make profits out of uh, financial uncertainty. So there's a, there's a very important aspect of. Two different faces of you know, Geneva International, uh, which we've done a little bit of, of discussions uh, when the Director General of the UN in, in, uh, in Geneva decided to make a big theme about uh, uh, understanding and promoting International Geneva. It was interesting to just puzzle as we did, saying, okay, well, what is International Geneva and how do we look at the relationships between these different communities that coexist and to some extent exist off of one another in a certain sense. Some people are solving the world's problems, others are benefiting from them. So this kind of uh, coexistence, again another example of the interpenetration or interconnectedness exists. But... um, Fabricating, well... uh, Well it's it's an interesting, it takes me back to some much earlier work I did in the 90s on on looking at uh, political economy of financial crises and the recurring nature of financial crises. We, we can anticipate with some certainty there will be future financial crises. I think we can anticipate with greater certainty there will be financial crises because we didn't learn lessons from the last financial crisis. Um, in fact, in terms of, of and now I'm making a more political statement about needs for greater financial regulation, particularly among uh, among the incentives in the financial community. So there are certain kinds of of industries that thrive precisely on uncertainty, and those, of course, are also the industries that that you're studying in your work in Africa, which are looking at uh, the the provision of if you can afford it, the greater certainty. So it, it, uncertainty is big business, certainly as well, and um, and financial markets are like um, are like gambling, I suppose, at a certain level. Um, so there is this relationship between them and 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 their periodic rise and, and, and collapse. We can, we can say with some certainty, there's nothing new, just like uncertainty, there's nothing really new about financial crises. We've had them before, we will have them again. I can say that with some uncertainty. What I can't say is when we'll have them, uh, because if I knew that, then I'd make a lot of money, but I'm an academic, so.
6: <laughs> I'm John Keene. Uh, I have a question for all of you, and it's, um, it might smack of pedantry, but uh, I'm, as an outsider, let's say, I'm utterly confused by what you mean by certainty or uncertainty. And I'm wondering whether um, that's because, and you don't have to be a Nietzschean to say this, that's because you can only define something with any certainty if it has no history. Uh, So is it that the the whole idea of the, the pair, certainty, uncertainty, is shot through with time which means that in a way if you wanted to be um, a devil's advocate the whole problematic of uncertainty is kind of a non-issue because not even certainty is, uh, is certain and as I noted uh, some of you um, uh, define certainty as to do with the integrity of the body the discussion you had about waking up in the morning under conditions of pauperization and violence and so on. Yet it's often, uh, certainty is often linked to evidence, facts, truth, reality. Uh, There's a great tension there. But I wondered whether you might, someone might have a go at defining what uh, certainty actually is. The other comment is to do with John Anderson. Uh, If he were in this room, he would be struck by the fact that not one of you mentioned religiosity. You know, his whole career is bound up with a struggle against organized Christianity. And I'm wondering, Tom, it's a question for you. You've said several times that nothing is new about uncertainty, but doesn't it make a difference uh, when cosmologies in which, you know, millions of people live, shift from a world where there is a God And uh, there is, of course, heaven and hell, and in which religion is, you know, the sigh of the oppressed and the heart of the heartless and so on. It has its own uncertainties, but isn't there something very major, important, that wasn't so far mentioned? The shift from that cosmology to a world of states and power and controversies about many things. Isn't that a very important shift? And in that, if that's the case, then our misfortune you could say, ironically, is that we ha- we're, we're learning, or we've, we're forced to learn, to cope with a new new modes of uncertainty that are actually pretty difficult uh, to handle because there ain't no God.
1: Yes, yeah. uh, <laughs>
6: I agree. Uh,
1: I'm going to pass this on, but I, I think you know every great uncertainty, to paraphrase, I don't think I think it was Bertrand Russell. I no, it wasn't. It was somebody else. Um, begins as a blasphemy. You know, there's this cycling through, and I think you're right to point out this, uh, call it what you wish, aporia that 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 we don't talk about too much. It's the third rail, in some ways, of how um, we have passed from a monotheism to competing monotheisms, and I think that's part of the issue of why, you know, a lot of the current clash of civilizations, whatever else, is. Redoubled the effort to assert one single truth. It's, it's you know, you can't have multiple monotheisms. It's by definition a blasphemy. So that's led to a lot of the I think current conflicts. And and you know, would a polytheism cure that? I'm not sure. I doubt it. The Romans were pretty good at making wars with other polytheistic countries and empires. Um, I wish we had John Anderson here to, to respond. But we have John Keane who's going to tell, uh, John always asks a question that he knows the answer to. I have a feeling we're going we're to get the answer tomorrow. or Maybe not. I hope so. But that's a great question. Maybe others will take a.
3: I agree. I mean, I've been brought up on post-structuralist uh, philosophy, in no small part, uh, because of James's path-breaking work in international relations. So in that sense, certainty, uncertainty, it's a dichotomy. It, it, it's not empirically. Uh, meaningful in that say if you're coming at it uh, from that direction. That's why I sort of try to maybe put it in, in, in ways that weren't sort of deconstructing this whole exercise that James has put us up to by saying that for me it makes in, in, the question about certainty-uncertainty makes sense in terms of looking at it as a political discourse. So it's what the deployment of that dichotomy does in terms of you know staking out a political terrain upon which foreign policy decisions in, in, in this case uh, are going to be made. And, and of course there's also, if we go to Rob Walker and Inside Outside and, and the dichotomy uh, that the sovereign territorial state is tied up with and so on, I mean, certainty will map on to things that can happen within the state, you know, that there's a possibility to have a certainty around, uh, around national politics, and of course you have the international, it's a classical realm of uncertainty, the only thing that's certain is that there's repetition and it's impossible to have progress uh, and so on and so forth, um, so um, yeah.
1: It's good to uh, run through the different traditions of international relations. (laughs) Can I,
4: okay, see if I can try to answer this by linking it up to the question of yours that I didn't answer very, very briefly. The interesting thing about the way that James framed the problem was that there's, there's this thing called truth and certainty. And that's kind of difficult theoretically, but probably bad politically. And there's this thing called uncertainty that is probably, therefore, good politically in the sense that it will generate kind of nice politics in some way, or at least potentially nice politics. This is one of the the ways of reading the postmodern ethic. One of the things that I find fascinating about contemporary radical conservatism, just try to answer your question, is that they actually accept the first two of those premises. These are not conservatives who look back to a truth. These are people who completely and utterly accept that there is no certainty. They are radical Nietzscheans in that way, if we want to look at it this way. Their argument is that, therefore, you need to get out there and create one. And to do that, you need to do it strategically. You may have to do it with the use of religion. You may have to do it with the use of nationalism. You may have to do it with the use of race. But you need to get out there and do it. And the most interesting people on these, I think, are people who now call themselves the new reactionaries. And there's there's a couple who are interesting, if you're interested in looking at them. Philosophically speaking, the most interesting one is a man who used to make his living as a practicing philosopher at none other than the University of Warwick for 11 years in the UK. His name is Nick Land. And I highly recommend to you his long essay called Dark Enlightenment, which is basically a call for a contemporary reactionaryism. Yet, if that is the case, then this question moves quite substantially to one of politics. Right? Because what is crucial here for these people is not whether truth exists in some on sense. It is whether or not you can grasp the political necessities that emerge out of that lack of, s- of certainty. And this is what they actually think they're doing. And that's why I think in this context, they're particularly interesting.
2: Tom. Yeah, I was, uh, since I was also mentioned in the question, let me, let me uh, respond slightly to what I was thinking of by way of conclusion, but didn't get around to earlier. And that is, is the idea that uncertainty is, is, first of all, uncertainty is essential for the pursuit of science. And in my view, that, that is you, you, if you know the outcome, if you know the answer to something, there's no point in engaging any in any systematic analysis of something. In fact, I do consider. In fact, even in my script here, it says it's akin to religion, moral suititude and dogma. Uh, as uh, that, and, and, and I also wrote earlier, absolute certainty is always an approximation. Uh, it's 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 never fully achievable unless you have that kind of religious dogma. So it was in my in my uh, my thoughts earlier today, but not in the presentation. But let me let me link it briefly to democracy in a certain sense, because this is I think a more, and now getting down to the practical politics of our day, the uncertainty I think is fundamental to to democracy as a form of governance. Now I'm just reflecting on Adam Jaworski's uh, simple idea that what is democracy but institutionalized uncertainty. That is you have institutions, but you don't know the outcome of the process of those institutions. So if we think of, of, of democracy as institutionalized uncertainty, then it's the threat of more certainty, how to rig elections through bots, how to uh, how to use psychometrics that should be of, of concern to us, that should more concern us more than greater uncertainty.
5: Can I, add, yeah, can I just add something very quickly to that? Uh, I completely agree with everyone that, you know, this uh, strict dualism between certainty and uncertainty is not something that will take us anywhere. One of the things that I wanted to say when I spoke about uh, all the new truths worth dying for Mm. is exactly the resurgence of religion and the search for certainty through religion. So if we look at the African context, the idea of religious wars, conflict over religion is a very new thing. West Africa, East Africa, very much a return and a resurgence of religion as part of the search in some ways for certainty. So if we haven't mentioned it, now we have, and we absolutely should have. What I find particularly interesting about this in many ways is that they are often framed and understood as something new, right? But they also hark back at the same time to something that has been lost. And in that sense, when you say there ain't no God, well, he's he or she or they are coming back big time, right, in this picture. And I think that's a very good observation.
1: Mm -hmm. I'd be interested in the debate you two have about this, because Michael was saying that the the God thing's on the decline in the radical conservative global movements. You're saying it's on the ascendant? or Mm -hmm. God is
4: um, one option. Mm -hmm. So if you look at radical conservatism, big question for the radical right is the United States... A nation, that's the nationalist argument. Is it a racially-based entity, that's the white argument. right? Or is it a Christian country? The, the radical right separates or recombines those in really weird ways on, on its ideological landscape. right? Religion is one of those, and it's often tied to one of the others.
1: So I'll hand back uh, towards the middle there. um.
8: Hi, my name's Ken Fraser. I'm just teaching security here at the uh, Sydney Uni. I shouldn't say just. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I uh, have a much more practical, prosaic uh, comment to do with the relationship between war and uncertainty. And that is, uh, I want to just make it clear that I'm not defending Donald Trump in any way, but uh, one thing he does say is that, so I teach security but I'm also a student of strategy and any good strategy, strategist knows that uncertainty, creating uncertainty in your opponents is a very good thing to do uh, when it comes to strategy. So I'm interested in this recent North Korean crisis, which I'm not sure where the crisis comes from. Uh, and I'm also interested in this idea that, that, that Trump has expressed in several occasions of saying you don't tell your enemies what you're going to do. So do we have any comments? I'm just wondering about if we have comments about that, that, that uncertainty is actually a very smart strategy uh, in that sense. I don't know whether he's using it in a smart way, but it, you know, in a, just as a general comment. So just to come back to the war theme that we started with. I appreciate that. Impressions on that one?
4: You're absolutely right. I think there is much, one, one underestimates Trump at one's peril, I think. Um, I think there's at least two things going on here that are quite interesting. One is this, three things. One is the creation of uncertainty as a political tactic, right? I think this is something, if you read um, the Donald's wonderful book, The Art of the Deal, um, you see that this is one, in fact, of his prime negotiating tactics. You never want to let somebody know where you're coming from if you're trying to buy their house, or their building, or their country, or whatever chooses he, he's desiring to buy at a various time. The second, I think, that is very interesting is that, in international relations at least, We often argue that you actually want to reduce uncertainty and you don't want to do uncertainty creating things because it gives you a bad reputation. This comes back to the question about time that was asked earlier. One of the things I find most interesting about Trump is he appears not to care about that, right? People say, but you can't hold this position because it absolutely contradicts the one you held two weeks ago. If you notice that, he never even bothers to address those claims reputation in that sense does not matter to him, which gives him actually a really interesting strategic advantage, I think, so long as he can get away with it. It opens up some very dangerous things as well. The third thing that I think is really important, and this is a much bigger topic, um, I hope, just to give a little plug, I'm I'm doing a talk at at the people who are sponsoring me to be here this, this semester the United States Studies Center on Tuesday, that this is part of Trump's hostility to what in in the radical rights terminology is called the administrative state. Because what the administrative state does is it puts in place procedures and norms that allow predictability. Everything that international liberals like. Procedures and norms are exactly what Trump does not want, right? Because that way you can actually make these strategies work. So his hostility to almost all forms of of global governance, as we think of them in the nice liberal sense, is actually both ideological and strategic. In fact, there's no difference between them.
1: He mentioned the word, or two words, global governance. Uh, I'm sure Tom, you have a response to this. No,
2: I'm not going to talk about global governance. I'm going to talk about, uh, I won't pick up that bait. Um, It's um, No, It's uh, now we're back. I I was hoping not to talk about this as well. the, the 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 trump factor the there is i mean you're right uh, that that he does have this uh, it it has certain strategic advantages the complete uncertainty I means someone with no prior experience in government limited understanding of foreign policy inconsistent temperament and prone to radical changes in and reversals in policy with as as michael says no no reflection. Inconsistency, oh, well, whatever. Uh, it, it, it's, 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 it's a huge, I should say huge, uh, experiment, <laughs> what, what we're living through. I mean, American political scientists today love experimental research designs. About a third of the articles published in leading American political science journals are based on experimental research designs. What we are all globally living through today is a huge, gigantic experiment. And it's an experiment about institutions at the national level and at the global level. So I will come back to institutions briefly on this. Uh, but in fact, it's striking to me. Now, I guess, well, you have an American passport. I have an American passport, as you probably tell from my accent. Um, it's, um, this experiment is an experiment of, of, um, of institutions. And I actually think the, uh, it, it's been an interesting couple of months, in fact. Trump was inaugurated just before I arrived here, so I've been watching this from a, a great distance. I normally watch it from Europe, not this far away. Uh, but it's, um, it's striking to me how, how much these agents of bureaucracy motivate, and I don't want to just say within the system, because it's actually, there's an extraordinary level of political mobilization in the US. Un, not unprecedented, but not seen at this level for a long period of time and what's happening within institutions. Notice how the courts have already reversed both the immigration bans and most recently the Sanctuary Cities decision. Notice how Congress has blocked the wall. Notice, I mean, there are all sorts of examples of this within institutions that are, are, and it's happening within institutions. The Defense Department. Tries to get out a press release before a tweet comes out of the White House because they want to define that missile launch as not a strategic threat or not a violation of the Joint JCPoa with Iran. Institutions are acting very proactively. The State Department just, in fact, handed Mr. Trump, uh, and he just renewed the, JCPOA, the basis of the agreement with Iran, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Um, now he had particular. We can go into the details of this, but. With, and despite all of this uncertainty, and maybe it is to his strategic advantage, the institutions are tempering this. In fact, what they're doing is they're creating not more certainty, but they're reducing ambiguity, they're, they're in reintroducing norms, they're actually modifying this. So we're, we're observing this process happening. Mostly it's an internal American story, but it's also happening internationally. Look at the ways in which uh, Canada and Denmark stepped in when the US cut funding uh, for um, child, maternal child support it, through the UN system. Countries are stepping up. Institutions are stepping up globally. So there, there is, a, 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 it, we're, we're living through this experiment. I don't know the answer. Uh, it's uncertain, but I think it's, yeah. it's not as bad You're as, I would have thought, sorry.
4: I, I gotta jump in. Yeah, go Certainty, the radical right would say, and you know what, we were certain That would happen, because that's exactly what these institutions do, and the only way to deal with that, and this is the position on the radical right, is to what Steve Bannon calls blow up the institutions, deconstruct them, because they will always do that, we're certain of it. He's right.
1: (laughs) You've been very patient in the back. I'm afraid this going to be our last question here.
9: Hi, uh, Eyal from Department of Peace and Conflict Studies. I'm sorry I missed the beg- very beginning, so I hope I'm not repeating anything, but, but the issue of uncertainty has been uh, on the agenda in some countries, mainly in Asia, Uh, with some philosophies for thousands of years, and in the Buddhist teachings they call it impermanence. So rather than search for certainty, they search for acceptance of uncertainty. And I think that part was missing, and in our society, our modern society, where it becomes easier and easier to manufacture uncertainty, I'm wondering whether instead of running around and trying to put out fires, We should not focus on the obvious answer, for me at least, which is, I will not say spirituality because I'll be kicked out of the university, but education in terms of uh, making people understand and become more resilient to this uh, obsession with certainty. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, all of you, for participating in this event. Before I thank all of people up here, I want to recognize the fact they've come a long way. Australia to share the views, that so we're very appreciative of that. But I also want to invoke John Anderson one last time, because John Anderson was Scottish-born, is that right, John? I, he was, I think he was a Glasgow boy. And you know, someone, I think John Passmore said, it was the greatest gift to ever come to Australia from Scotland. Um, some people might disagree about that, I don't know. But you know, at a time when four, five, seven visas are being challenged where a lot of us came here on these visas and, and the open-mindedness of, 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 of John Anderson and the open society that allowed him to come here. It's, I think, very important to preserve, maintain, and, and protest against that closure. Um, that's my one political intervention today. Finally, you noticed all these dead white men we were talking about before. There's this one guy in a toga back there. I think he's about to get a cup of hemlock. I, I believe that's Socrates, but um, John Anderson wrote in lectured about Socrates. I'm just going to end with something he said um, because he put a lot of attention to the examined life. The unexamined life is not worth living, and that was John Anderson to help his students gain that critical reflection and challenge authority, um, received opinions, traditions, um, and go against the Athenians, which ended in Socrates being offered hemlock. Um, But this is something that ended his um, little book on Socrates. He said, the Socratic education begins then with the awakening of the mind to the need for criticism, to the uncertainty of the principles by which it supposed itself to be guided. So right there in one sentence he gets it all, he gets it all right. So I want to thank all of you, I want to thank the ghost of John Anderson, I want to thank our guest and our dean for making this all possible and our head of school. So thank you very much all. <laughs>